1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Sin and Judgment. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. In our series of Sin and Judgment, we undertook this series because most people underestimate and even distort the true nature of God in relationship not to His love, but in relation to His holiness and righteousness. Most people underestimate, and even believers, we have a tendency because of the old man within us to underestimate the holiness and righteousness of God. This is why we undertook this series in the New Testament. The New Testament, because in the New Testament is where most people, if they deny the holiness and righteousness and judgment of God as a consequence of His holiness and righteousness, they use New Testament verses out of context to prove that now God is only compassionate, He's only loving, He's only merciful, we should only speak of grace and never speak of sin and judgment. However, we have seen from Matthew and now to Thessalonians that this is not the case at all. And we're not done with the New Testament. It is not the case at all. In fact, those who say such things are distorting the Bible to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3, 14-18 The untaught and unstable who say things like this are denying the true God, the true and living God, or as even the Apostle said in verse 9 here, chapter 1, verse 9, a living and true God. They are denying this living and true God and worshiping an idol. Because if the God that they worship is not the God of Scripture, not the God of the Holy Bible, then they are worshiping an idol. 1 John five twenty one, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We should not do so. This is the reason for this series. And the platform for it was actually the study of the chapter in the Baptist Confession that mentions the attributes of God. And when we were on the judgment and holiness section, this is the series we undertook to elaborate on what the confession had to say. Now that we've come to Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, these are two letters written by the Apostle Paul, written around AD 50, 51, 52, in that period of time. These would be this, the letters written most likely, according to most scholars, both liberal and conservative, after the letters of Galatians and James. After Galatians and James would be these letters of the Thessalonians. The main concern the, the Apostle has in Thessalonians, both in First and Second Thessalonians, has to do with the return of Christ. It has to do with a correct understanding and dispelling, correcting false understandings of the return of Christ. That's the main concern. And there are things that people say in relation to His second coming, in reference to how it will be, when it will be, who will be with Him, and what is the situation with those on the earth. 
What will it be for us while we are still here? How is our life supposed to be between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? What is supposed to happen? What should our own life expect? What should we be expecting personally and also corporately as a church? What should we expect between the first and the second comings of Christ? These letters address many of those questions and many of the disputes that have occurred over the years. Speaking of that, there are a few viewpoints, a handful of viewpoints in relation to the return of Christ that have to deal with the content of these two letters in reference to those positions or those viewpoints. These viewpoints, uh, let me mention them in brief. Amillennialism, amillennialism, an A and then the word millennial, negating the word millennium. That view does not believe that there is a literal reign of Christ on the earth. The world gets worse, and then Jesus returns bodily. There's resurrection from the dead. There's the day of judgment, and then eternity. No literal reign of prosperity on the earth. Nothing like that is to be expected. That's all millennialism. Another viewpoint is known as historic premillennialism or classical premillennialism. They believe similar to the amillennial view, except they do think that when Jesus returns physically, bodily, that there will be a long period of peace and prosperity while he is reigning on the earth. Either a long period or 1,000 years. That's why it's called pre-millennialism. Jesus returns before that millennium begins. Then there's two more views. Another one is known as dispensationalism, also called dispensational pre-millennialism. In that view, they also believe Jesus returns bodily. And then the millenn- when he returns, the millennium is for the nation of Israel. It's not for the church, it's for the nation of Israel. They will reign and rule on the earth with Christ for a thousand years. The millennium's purpose is for God to fulfill his promises of the Old Testament to the patriarchs and even some New Testament promises to fulfill the scriptures in reference to Israel only, physical, ethnic, uh, Israel only, not the church, but for Israel. But before that happens, there is supposed to be uh, the church escaping, being raptured out of the world. The church will escape the increase in persecution and increase in evil in the world, and then that will happen because we are instantly, automatically, miraculously taken away from this earth, and then the world becomes worse and worse, a a great tribulation occurs in which the people on the earth are suffering immensely, and then, after that happens for a time, then Jesus returns bodily. But the church does not experience that suffering, according to their view. And also, they take the book of Revelation very literally, at least they attempt to do so very literally. Many times it's unsuccessful, but they attempt to take it literally. That's the third. The fourth view is called post-millennialism. Post meaning after. Post-millennialism, after a period in the world of peace, prosperity, Christianization of the world, Christian dominance in the world, the world is going to improve. The world will get better. The world will become more Christian. Every part of the world, whether business, politics, entertainment, any kind of industry, any sphere of life, the world will get better. The churches will get better. More and more people will love the word. They'll be godly. They'll seek for the Lord. They'll seek his salvation in the churches. That's what they say in post-millennialism. That is the only view that is optimistic in terms of the way things will go on the earth, the events of the earth. That fourth view, post-millennialism, is optimistic in that sense. So the world becomes mostly 
or fully Christian, then Jesus returns to receive his kingdom on the earth. But some of them, some of them, they believe that Jesus already returned invisibly in 19, uh, not 19, in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, Jesus already returned. He returned invisibly. Some of them also believe that the Antichrist also existed between A.D. 65 to 70. One of the Roman emperors, Nero himself perhaps, was the Antichrist. So Antichrist is also coming on, they say. Some of the post-millennialists say. Also, some of the post-millennialists will say that the day of resurrection has already occurred. The resurrection is invisible, just as Jesus' return was invisible. The resurrection of the dead is invisible, and that already occurred in A.D. 70. Some post-millennialists believe that. Not all of them. Some of them believe those additional doctrines that I just mentioned. But what is true? What is biblical? What should we gather after we study First and Second Thessalonians? What knowledge can we have to approach this subject, to deal with this subject of when, how, what will be the circumstances, what is the nature of the return of Christ? That's one issue. Another is, in most views, in most churches, in most denominations, between the first and second comings of Christ, they downplay and even denigrate the need for holiness, the need for sanctification, the need to grow in godliness. They downplay it and even ridicule it and label it legalism. They label it pharisaicalism. They label it work salvation. That's what they do. But we cannot do so. And we'll see in Thessalonians, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we cannot do that at all. So these points of discernment, this kind of proper judgment on what the Bible says and its true application to our life will be addressed in these two letters. 1st Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul visited this city of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. There were some converts, some converts, others who blasphemed and rejected, and the church was established there, first from the synagogue of the Jews and then with some Gentiles. So we have a a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, in this first century church in Thessalonica. His greetings, as, as is typical, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. From this greeting, we can also see his view of the Trinity, his view of the relationship of the Father and the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. There is a distinction of persons, though there is only one God, though there is only one Lord. This is necessary in case we deal with those who are denying the Trinity. Anti-Trinitarian cults are out there. Oneness Pentecostal, Jesus only, apostolic, so-called apostolic churches deny the Trinity. But chapter 1, verse 1 mentions God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as distinct persons. They say one person is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father at one point in history, the Son at another point in history, and now He is the Holy Spirit. One person. Yet that is denied by the Apostle Paul here. Further, verses 2 and 3, he mentions what he uh, prays about. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. 
When Paul thinks of other believers, he gives thanks to God. He gives thanks for what God has done in them, what he is doing in them, making mention of them in prayers. Remember, thankfulness is a key component of good prayer, true prayer, and of a true Christian. A true Christian is a thankful Christian. He's not caustic. He's not ungrateful. He's not demanding. He's not a leech. He is thankful. He gives thanks and he shows it in sincerity. Verse 3, what does he see in them? Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. He's always thinking about their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Is the Apostle Paul teaching work salvation? Is he teaching legalism? No. But he said, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. He used those words. He's saying that the fruit of God's choice is manifested in them. He, in verse 3, he's speaking of the fruit of God's choice. In verse 4, the fact of God's choice. The reason they are bearing fruit the way they are is that they are, verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. The fruit is in verse 3. The foundation of the fruit, the reason for the fruit, is in verse 4. They are beloved and they are chosen of God. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. They did not come with lip service. They did not come as talkers, but not walkers. They did not come pretending. They practiced. That's the way they were. He says it wasn't in word only. We didn't come in word only. Therefore, what God did in you, what God did for you bearing fruit in you, was not word only either. We saw that God's word actually produced fruit in you. Just as it had produced fruit in us, it has produced fruit in you. Because God's word comes with power, it comes with the Holy Spirit, and it comes with full conviction. The word of God is a powerful word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 It's not a powerless word. The word produces. It's not empty or powerless. It is accompanied by power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. We are the ones who have the Holy Spirit. Not the people who are always clamoring and touting that they have the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. It is not the Catholics and it's not the Charismatics. The Catholics and the Charismatics claim that they possess the Holy Spirit. No, they do not. They possess deceitful spirits. We have the Holy Spirit. Also, we find in verse 5, full conviction. When we speak the word, whether in the pulpit or day to day, when we speak the word, we have to actually believe what we're saying. When we believe what we're saying, it will be expressed with full conviction. Not in a corner, not secretly, not cowardly, not timidly, but with full conviction. We say what we believe. We actually believe these words. We believe the miracles. We believe Jesus died and rose again for us. We believe in these truths. 
So when we speak, we ought to speak with full conviction. If we do not speak with full conviction, if we don't speak with any conviction, we do not have faith in what we're saying. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The definition of faith he gives to us here, Hebrews 11.1, he says it is assurance and it is conviction. Assurance and conviction. So if we speak the word, we must have conviction. Those who don't have conviction, they don't believe it. And they won't say it. The world and even the nominal church will label our conviction as pride. Our conviction as invalid dogmatism. They will label our conviction as stubbornness, inflexibility. That's what they will say. But it is not pride. If we are believing what's in the Bible, then it is the perfect definition of humility because it's coming from the God of heaven. It's coming from our Redeemer. It's coming from our Savior. It's not coming from us. The people who label that, they are the ones who are full of pride because they won't submit themselves to the Word of Christ. They are the ones full of pride because it's their views which is earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom. It's not God's views, it's theirs. That's pride. What we say from Scripture is full conviction of faith. Further, he says in verse 5, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's going to explain further what he means by how we lived among you in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses, well, throughout the chapter, but especially verses 1 to 12, he's going to explain how they lived among them. But he's saying to them, did you not see tangible evidence? Did you not see proof? He says, we proved to be among you. We live this way. You saw it. And for whose benefit? Their benefit. Because it adds authority or it adds beauty to the gospel. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 So when the word was preached, there was harmony with what was preached and how they lived. And it corroborated and gave to the hearers confidence that these men were genuine, authentic, sincere men preaching this word. And that's what they wanted because God instilled it in them to want it. So our life and our lips ought to match for the sake of others. He says in 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Not just the Apostle Paul, which would have been good enough, but we say Silvanus and Timothy because Silvanus... And Timothy, especially Timothy, they were not ordained as apostles. People say, well, Paul's not living here, so we don't know how to live. Well, a disciple of Paul is Timothy. And Timothy, he's addressed in the letters of First and Second Timothy. We know how he lived there. So we do have an example that is made in a non-apostle for us to follow. 
First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. First Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the same here. The Thessalonians did so, and they became an example to other believers. Do you see how it transfers? It goes from God in Christ to the apostles, the apostles to their disciples, including Silvanus and Timothy. It then transfers to the Thessalonians. And after the Thessalonians, it goes on to the Macedonians and the Achaeans. That's how it spreads. True imitators or true examples of the faith and godliness. Then he says also, not only did their life exemplify itself in others, to others, in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, and not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Not just in these regions, but in other regions. Everybody's learning about the Thessalonians. And who else is learning? We are. It's in the Bible. So for 2,000 years, people have been learning about the faith and the godliness of the Thessalonians. All that God did first in them and through them. But was this an easy faith? This is one of the key components of the way our life will be between the first and the second comings. What is it? Verse 6. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life will not be easy. It will not be peaceful and calm. There will be tumults. There will be afflictions. There will be hardships. There will be persecutions. This is quite evident both in this first letter and in the second letter. He mentions persecutions as being embedded and accompanying the Christian life. It's a part of the Christian life. There's no escape of it. No escape whatsoever. Indeed, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Now an example of their transformation. Verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These other believers report about us, Paul and his companions, what kind of a reception we had with you. The news of how well the Thessalonians received the missionaries, that news spread. So they heard about the way godly believers treated other godly believers. And that encouraged those who heard. They are also encouraged by seeing that they used to worship idols and they gave them all up. They didn't say, well, let me cut out two or three or ten ways in which I serve my idols, but let me also keep two or three or five ways to keep worshiping my idols. They didn't think that way. That's not evident. He would not be commending them if that were the case. They would not have been said to have turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. No, they expunged, they excised, they got rid of every aspect 
of their previous life, idolatrous life. Whether in theology or morality, they got rid of it all. Not only did they get rid of it, they turned to God from idols. They turned to God who is what? To serve a living and true God. The idols of the world, not only the image uh, worship kind of idolatry, but any kind of other idolatry. For example, some image worshipers will have their favorite idols published on a 3 by 5 card that they can keep in their pockets, keep in their purses. And wherever they're going here and there, they can pull out the card and worship their idol. Yes, 3 by 5 cards. cards. Well, don't we do that? Even in those nations they do it, what I'm about to say. We have our sports heroes on 3 by 5 cards. And we keep them in our pocket. We keep them in our box. We keep them handy so we can look at them, so that we can drool over them. We can talk about them, tell our friends about them, show them to others. That, that is idolatry also. Idolatry has many, many forms. But we ought to get rid of the past and cling and serve, worship a living and true God. Those idols are not going to help us do anything. Those idols don't care for us because many times they don't even know about us. If we're talking about people, they don't even know about us. They're not going to help us with anything. We need to know and love God through His Word. Verse 10. Not only did did they give up idolatry and now serve the living and true God, they are waiting they are hoping. They are expecting the Son of God from heaven. The Son of God from heaven. That little phrase, from heaven, it deals with eschatology. Any viewpoint in eschatology that says Jesus is not descending from heaven is false. You can scratch it. Don't believe anything that he says. Because right here it says he's coming from heaven. If they say he already came in AD 70, invisibly, you can scratch it. If they say he came in 1917, like Jehovah's Witnesses say, he returned in 1917 or 1914, one of those times, right around World War I, <coughs> Jesus returned, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. Then he was supposed to return in 1925, and in 1975, there were several false predictions by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then they say, he did return, he returned invisibly. He returned invisibly. And we know that the return is a bodily and physical return. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he makes that point clear, that it will be bodily and physical. We shouldn't be alarmed or surprised when it happens, it's going to be obvious to all. Verse 10, it says, This is the same Son whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Jesus who was raised from the dead is the judge of all mankind. Acts 17.31 Having appointed a day and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 31. The one who was raised from the dead is the judge of all mankind. He delivers us from the wrath to come, but he will judge the others by the wrath of God. We are delivered from the wrath to come. What wrath is it that is to come? He says, from the wrath to come. In chapter 5, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we read, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. From that we gather that the wrath has to do with eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. In one view of eschatology, they say the wrath is the wrath of the tribulational period, and that's this is a verse they say means that we're going to escape that time of wrath on the earth during the tribulation. We escape invisibly in the rapture, we're taken out of the way. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. They cite this verse to prove that point. But this verse is not talking about the tribulation. It's talking about the return of Christ and like 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it's talking about the difference between eternal judgment and eternal salvation. So, now chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. 2 verse 1. We read 2, 1 to 20. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom, worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now the testimony, the Thessalonians were eyewitnesses. 
They interacted. They were personal. They were in the presence of the Apostle Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And they saw the way that they lived. They saw that the way that they talked, they had personal, intimate interaction with these men. And so, when the Thessalonians are tempted to believe others, when the Thessalonians are tempted to succumb to persecution and deny the faith, when the, persecu- uh, when the Thessalonians ha- are persecuted by their own countrymen, Jews by other Jews, Gentiles by other Gentiles, when this happens, when this kind of scenario occurs, it's very easy to be shaken, it's very easy to be confused, it's very easy to deny the gospel and to walk away. But here, he is telling the Thessalonians, you know, your own eyes saw the way we lived, what we believed, how we treated you, so why would you ever depart from us? That is the implication of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Why would you ever doubt what we're saying to you based on the way we lived before you? He says, verse 1, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. We did not come with no purpose, an empty reason, but after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. We could read about this persecution in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 is Philippi. Acts 17, at the beginning of Acts 17, is the Thessalonians. So, they know that there was much suffering, much persecution, opposition in Philippi, and they came from there to Thessalonica. Why would they do so? Because they really believed what they were preaching in Philippi. They truly, honestly, genuinely believed it, and God is the one who gave them the boldness to speak in another city, in their city. It was God doing it. Not the flesh, but it was God. Then verses 3 and 4. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. There's no error here. It's only truth. And in the Bible, error is the opposite of truth. 1 John 4, 1 to 6. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Error doesn't mean an accident, a mistake. I just stubbed my toe. I didn't see the stone on the, on the way. It, there's not an accident with error. By error in the Bible, he's meaning falsehood, lies, deceit, that which is untrue. So, not from error. I don't have anything I'm telling you that is untrue, that is impure, or that is deceitful. Everything is honest. Everything is true in the exhortation. And verse 4, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. God entrusted them. They proved it by the way they preached, by the way they lived, and even by the miracles performed by the apostles. They proved it that they were from God. They also proved it because they were focused without hesitation, without distraction, on pleasing God. He says, not as pleasing men. They did not come as men-pleasers, people-pleasers, they came to please God. So they did not care what the people thought of them in terms of what they were preaching and how they lived, what they believed. 
They only cared about what God cared about or what God thought of them. Not what the people thought of them, but what God thought of them. Because God examines the hearts. And how do we know when people are trying to please other people or a false preacher, a false pastor is trying to um, please men? Verse 5. The evidence is, we never came with flattering speech. We never came with flattering speech. You're the best speaker I've ever heard. You, you make the best uh, cake in the world. You dress the best that I've ever seen anybody dress. You know, <coughs> flattering speech, that's the way that we disarm people. We disarm the hearers with flattering speech. That should not happen. A genuine compliment is different from flattering speech. He's saying no flattery. Also, no pretext for greed. Well, why do the false preachers want to flatter their hearers? So that there's more and more of them. There's more and more of them. And if you have more of them, it's just a business model. Would you rather sell to just 10 people or would you rather sell your product to 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people? Of course, in a business world, you want to sell to 10,000, but we're not in the business world. We're in the church world, in the theological world, and it doesn't work that way. It should not work that way. That's why he says, you know we did not have a pretext for greed. We weren't pretending and, and trying to be greedy among you. God is witness. And then another is in verse 6. How do we know that men are men-pleasers? and not God-pleasers. Verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. We weren't seeking your praise. We weren't seeking for you to say how wonderful we are. We weren't seeking for those things. We weren't seeking for the flattery on a two-way street. That is, the preachers were not flattering or should not flatter the people and the people should not flatter the preacher. It should all be genuine. And he says that that's evidence. When they are seeking glory from men, seeking praise from men, that's a sign of a false teacher. As apostles of Christ, they could have done certain things a certain way, but they chose to back off. They chose to be gentle. Verse 7. First he describes their behavior like a gentle mother with a nursing child, and then as a father in verse 11. First in verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. They worked hard. They were gentle with the people. They imparted their life. They were not demanding of the people, but imparting their own life to the people. Labor, hardship, working night and day. And just like the mother tenderly cares for her own children, just like the mother has a fond affection for her children, just as the mother considers her children very dear to her. That is the way the apostles were with the people. He was not, they were not lording it over them. They were not seeking glory. They were not exploiting them, but tenderly, fondly caring for them. Further, verses 10 to 12. The Father, image of the Father. 
You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Drawing attention again to the fact that they were eyewitnesses of all this. They saw that they were devout, upright, blameless. They were not shady. They were not notorious. They were not suspicious. That's not the way they were behaving. They were behaving in upright, godly ways. And constantly telling the people, the Thessalonians, exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. These are strong words, words of persuasion. Not words of domination, not words of violence, but words of persuasion to exhort, encourage, and implore. Why so? Because they had full conviction. If they have full conviction, then they will exhort, they will encourage, they will implore. In the imploring part, he says, each one of you as a father would his own children. Fathers implore their children in their discipline, in their daily life, what they should do, what they should not do. Fathers encourage their children as to what they should do, what they should not do. And they also exhort their children in what they should do and what they should not do. Because the goal is to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God calls into his own kingdom and glory, but notice, we must be worthy. We must be worthy. God is not saving people and then leaving them in their sins to wallow in their sins between the time of their supposed conversion and the time that they die. No, he is making people worthy. And by that, he's not saying work salvation. He's saying you grow in godliness. You seek to shake off your impurities and become more and more pure, more and more worthy and presentable to God when the Lord returns. He called us into his own kingdom and glory. This calling is an effectual calling for the purpose of holiness and glorification. Not only is the calling for salvation, but it is also for sanctification and glorification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. Sanctification is here. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And then the glorification, 5.24, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. He called us effectually for our salvation. He calls us for sanctification, and he's also going to bring it to fruition. He's going to bring everything to pass. He called us for the purpose of glorification for all phases of the Christian life. 13. A twofold reception. A positive and a negative reception. Verses 13 to 16. This is the way it usually is. Some will believe, others will disbelieve. Some will willingly and happily receive the word, and others will despise it, they will have a distaste for it, they will reject it, and blaspheme it. Two kinds of results. 13 is the good. 13 and 14. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you, who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured 
the same of sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. They are commended for receiving the apostles' message as God's message. Not the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God who performs, which performs its work in you who believe. Some say, the Apostle Paul did not know he was preaching the word of God. The Apostle Paul did not know he was writing the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, in fact, did not even believe he was writing the Word of God. It was generations later of these zealous Christians who wanted to influence the people, influence the masses, influence society. It was these zealous religionists among the Christians who had this scheme of saying Paul was an apostle and he wrote the Word of God so that they could impose their beliefs and exploit the common people. That's how we have the the letters of the Apostle Paul in the Bible. Originally, Paul never, no, he never believed he was writing Scripture and preaching Scripture. Yes, there are some who believe that. Liberals believe that. Liberal theologians, liberal churches believe that. But in 13 it says, Paul is writing. He's the writer. And even many liberals understand that Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians. So Paul is the writer and Paul is commending the Thessalonians that verbally when they first heard it, they knew it was God's message, Word of God. And then when he wrote it, it was the Word of God. They knew it both ways, both in person and in print. First Thessalonians chapter 4, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 4 verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He says there, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. We say to you by the word of the Lord. 5.27 I adjure you by the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brethren. It's obvious. Paul knows, he's self-aware, that he is writing Scripture. Authoritative, inspired Scripture coming from Christ and ultimately from God. Then, 14, he commends them because... They endured the same sufferings at the hands of their own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Here he's addressing the Gentiles among the Thessalonians. The Gentiles among the Thessalonians also were persecuted by their own kinsmen, their own tribes, their own nation were persecuting them, just like the Jews persecuted Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and others. It will happen. Just because you're of the same nation, you speak the same language, does not mean it will go well and swell for you. Does not necessarily mean that. So when it does happen, don't be discouraged. Look at 15. These Jews, now he's addressing what the Jews are doing in 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So if the Jews in power, in authority, killed Christ, killed the prophets, and drove out the apostles, is Christ wrong? Are the prophets wrong? And are the apostles wrong? Because the men in power are telling us that. 
the men in power are saying that's the way it, it should be. Are the men in power correct? Or are these godly men correct? Who is correct? He says, 15, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Don't let any doubts arise just because the men in power are dominating and rejecting this truth, it does not mean that they are correct. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Not only are they hostile to all men, they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They don't want the Gentiles saved, the Jews. So stop preaching to the Gentiles. That's similar to Jonah. Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be saved, so he fled to Tarshish. He tried to flee to Tarshish, and God stopped him and made him go to the Gentiles, to the Ninevites, so that they might be saved. And the same here, that the Jews are trying to prevent the truth from spreading to the nations of the world. So, when they do it, is God aware? And what is God going to do to them? He is aware, 16, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. God's aware, and God will punish them. He is measuring their sins, and it is coming to full measure. When it comes to full measure then God will deal with it in due time. In due time, their foot will slip. The day of judgment will come upon them quickly, suddenly, and they shall not escape. It will come upon them like a thief in the night, and they shall not escape. Just as God waited for Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says that their sins have come up to him. Just as God waited for the Ninevites, Their wickedness has come up before me, God said. And the same thing here, they fill up the measure of their sins. And when it is full, when the container is full, they will be punished. And be certain that wrath has come upon them. The day of wrath is appointed and it is appointed for them. All who... Resist and blaspheme God by the preaching of the true gospel. On the other hand, he is returning to command the Thessalonians. This is a genuine compliment and commendation of the way the Thessalonians have dealt with things and how he wants to be with them and see them again. 2.17 But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy." He wants to be with the people of God. And he wants to see how they are growing in the faith, how they're thinking, how they're living. He wants to know how things are going with them. He wants to go constantly, and yet Satan has thwarted his attempts. By this, he likely means the circumstances of of life, persecutions, imprisonments, These circumstances have prevented him from returning to visit the Thessalonians. And he ascribes this work to Satan. Though it might be people, though it might be money, whether he has it or doesn't have it, whether it is companions to go with him on the journey, whether it is the weather, whatever it might be, It's thwarting him from visiting them. But meantime, he says, 
our hope, joy, crown of exaltation, our glory and joy. It's them. He doesn't care about what they have. He cares about who they are, how they have been transformed. And that transformation is what is going to give him joy when Jesus returns. He says, Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? He's thinking about when Jesus returns and all the saints are together and the knowledge of the Thessalonians and their godliness, the fruit in them, all being presented and all being delivered to Christ at His coming. Also, by the way, the word here says coming. That means that He did not come yet. Coming does not mean He already came. Coming means it's anticipated. 3.13 says, So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Chapter 5, verse 2, 5, 1 and 2. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. 5.23. 5.23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming. He is not already here, invisibly, as the false teachers say, nor visibly. He is not here already. He will come, as it says in Acts 1, 9-11. As you have seen Him go up into heaven, He will come back or come down from heaven in just the same way. Bodily ascension and bodily descension from heaven. Not invisible, though of course we know he's at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over the world. That invisible part is, that's indisputable. That's of course happening. But he's not invisible on the earth in the way the false teachers say it. Controlling the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Brooklyn, New York, or... Sung Young Moon, a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. The Moonies, no, that's not the case either. The Unification Church, that's not the case either. Nor is he in that invisible way or tangible way in the way that any other false teacher says it. He is here on the earth reigning invisibly in the biblical sense, but not in the sense of the false teachers. And bodily, he's in heaven, but will descend one day. And when he descends, we'll all be together and with the Lord forever, as he says in chapter 4. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord, 4.17. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.